This is Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Cold Case Canada. The Monica Jack story is based on a chapter from my book, Cold Case BC. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. 12-year-old Monica Jack had been given an early birthday present from her father. She loved her new 10-speed bike and she was excited that her mother was letting her go on her first long ride. She planned to bike from her home at Nicola Lake along Highway 5 to meet her 14-year-old cousin, Debbie John, and then together they'd ride the rest of the way to Merritt. Monica's father had given her some money to buy new shoes, and she wanted to buy a belated birthday present for her younger sister Liz. Liz had just turned 11 the previous day. The family lived on the Upper Nicola Reserve at Quilchenna, 22 kilometres east of Merritt, a logging and ranching community at the head of the Nicola River. Monica's father, Philip Swacom, worked a cattle ranch with his four brothers. Monica liked horses and would occasionally drop by the ranch. On Saturday, May 6, 1978, Monica put on a pair of brown corduroy pants, a white T-shirt with a flowery pattern and blue runners. She helped her mother Madeline bake a birthday cake for Liz. In two weeks, on May 19th, Monica would turn 13. After lunch, she waved goodbye to her mother and started the long bike ride to Merritt. Late that afternoon, Monica and Debbie set off for home. They stopped at the junction in Nicola, about eight kilometres from Merritt, and chatted for a while. Then Debbie turned for home, and Monica continued on alone. Madeline had also been to town that afternoon with Monica's two younger sisters to shop for items for Liz's birthday party and to buy supplies for a fishing trip she was taking that same night. The family was returning about 7.30 when they saw Madeline riding her bike not far from their home. Madeline honked the horn and Liz called out to ask Monica if she wanted to ride with them the rest of the way. Monica said no, she'd be fine and she waved to them. It would be light out until about 8.30. Madeline expected that Monica would be back at the house shortly. She dropped off the kids and left for her fishing trip, joining adult relatives to fish for trout at nearby Stony Lake. The children stayed at home, looked after by their older cousins and siblings. Monica had an outgoing personality and a distinctive laugh. She had beautiful long brown hair and big brown eyes. Monica stood four foot eight and weighed only 90 pounds, but was often mistaken for a few years older than 12. She was a good student, a happy kid, and had lots of friends. Monica had already decided that she was going to be a social worker like her mum and help as many people as she could. She liked playing softball, playing with her siblings, hiking, 
and swimming in Nicola Lake. Monica was the third youngest of eight siblings and very close to Liz, the second youngest. When I interviewed Liz for my book, she told me that her sister Monica was sweet, funny, beautiful and good at everything that she ever saw her do. She remembers baking together on the weekends, riding their bikes and swimming. To earn spending money during the summer, Monica, Liz and Heather, the younger sister, would collect stray golf balls from the creek. When they each had an ice cream bucket full, they'd sell the golf balls back to the golf club and take the money to the store to buy candy. Liz told me about one particularly happy Labor Day weekend in 1977, the year before Monica was killed. Liz, Monica and their cousin Debbie dressed up in their grandparents' fancy buckskin clothes and rode on their uncle's car, which had been turned into a float and decorated with pine tree boughs. They won Best Decorated Float. Madeline still has the trophy. When the little girls were at Kamloops Indian Residential School, Liz says Monica always looked out for her younger sisters. Once when Liz was being bullied by a boy at the residential school, Monica quickly put a stop to it and sent him on his way. I'll be right back after this short message from our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. On Forbidden Vancouver's Lost Souls of Gastown Walking Tour, you'll step inside a world of murder and revenge. There's a retelling of Victorian Gastown's earliest stories, with tales of the Great Fire, smallpox outbreaks, and the unsolved murder of John Bray. The experience is led by one of Forbidden Vancouver's cast of professional theatre actors, who leads you through the city's oldest back streets and alleyways to a dramatic finale in the heart of Gastown. I took this walking tour and it sure sent a shiver down my spine. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% when you use the code COLDCASE. When Madeline returned from her fishing trip the next morning, she was shocked to find that Monica had not come home. The last time anyone had seen her was when she and the kids had passed her riding a bike the previous evening. Madeline drove to the RCMP detachment in Merritt. Glenn, Monica's 18-year-old brother, started walking along the highway searching for his sister. He found her bike at a pullout by Nicola Lake, near where she had last been seen. The bike had been tossed down the bank and had landed a few feet from the water. Martin Nichols is now retired from the RCMP, but in 1978 he had less than a year on the job at the Merritt RCMP detachment when Monica disappeared. Madeline arrived at the detachment about 4pm and Nichols immediately put out a missing persons broadcast on the local radio station. So you were on the Monica Jack case from the beginning, were you? Yeah, I actually initiated that file. It was a nice sunny afternoon, Sunday as I recall. Monica Jack's mom came into the office, the front counter, and said that Monica hadn't come home the night before. And she was very concerned and her son had found Monica's bike discarded at a pullout not too far from the Quilshenna Reserve where they lived. And it looked like it had been tossed into the weeds. So I, I went out there. And at that time, I still had that new car smell on my badge. I'd been a policeman for less than a year. Went back to the 
office to get more stuff that we needed to do an investigation. In those days, the whole detachment had to share one camera, if you can believe that. And I just started walking the beach up and down, looking for uh, possible grounding scenarios, and didn't find anything. And then a bit of time went on, and I ended up talking to a rancher about a mile away towards Merritt, and he said that he actually thinks he heard or saw the kidnapping because he described a camper truck combo unit and said he heard cries, you know, distress cries coming across the water. I just gave evidence on that trial, oh, less than two years ago. What were you testifying about in the trial? Basically just what I told you about discovering the bicycle, finding a few scraps of probably non-related things like, I don't know, a pop bottle, some piece of a beer case or something, you know, just things. Did you work on a, a lot of missing people or unsolved murders? No. My career was quite different. Mm. I only spent eight years doing uh, detachment police work. Three of those years were in Gold River, five years in Merritt. I did everything. It was such a wild west, crazy little town. It was a very prosperous town when I lived there. They had three sawmills, Craigmont Mines. The logging industry was uh, very active then. Farming and ranching was huge there. The uh, Douglas Lake Ranch is one of the biggest ranches in the world mm-hmm. in, in our detachment area. A whole bunch of indigenous people lived right around us, so we had all the social issues that come with uh, working around big reserves. I think there were five reserves surrounding Merritt. So it was a real, real big job. Once it was established that Monica had been abducted, the investigation was handed over to the Kamloops General Investigation Section. But Nichols never forgot. For the next 15 years, he carried a photo of Monica around in his briefcase. That was until his own daughter, 14-year-old Lindsay Nichols also vanished from a BC road near Comox in 1993. Police put out an appeal for anyone who had been travelling along Highway 5 on May 6th between 7.45 and 8.15 to get in contact with them. Four witnesses came forward and said they'd seen a man standing near the pullout at around 8pm and a light green truck with a camper on the back was parked nearby. Monica and Graham Whitecross lived just south of the pullout. Graham said that around 7.30 after the hockey game, he and his son walked down to a boathouse by his property. When he got there, he saw a person about 200 feet away at the water's edge. He was bent over as though he was washing his hands. Graham said he saw a truck and camper parked at the pullout. Shortly afterwards, he heard a person cry out. But when he looked, he couldn't see anyone. This is Monica Whitecross's statement, read by Megan Dunn. On last Saturday evening, May 6th, I saw Monica, or one of the Jack girls, stop at the foot of my brother's driveway. She was riding a bicycle. The dog had started barking and I looked up and saw her. She was riding with the flow of traffic towards Quilchina. She only stopped for a couple of minutes, probably long enough to catch her breath, and went on. 
This would have been immediately after the hockey game ended at about 7.30-7.45 p.m. I was working in the garden, so I didn't pay much attention to what happened after that. My husband Graham and our little boy went for a walk up the road, and they were probably already up to the boathouse when the jack girl went past. The girl's bicycle was a 5 or 10 speed. I can't say for sure that Monica was riding it, but I do know for sure it was one of the jack girls. Michael Rose also came forward and said he saw the camper coming from the Merritt area and travelling very slowly. He was following behind for a short time when he saw the camper pull over. He didn't remember seeing the camper when he returned about 15 minutes later. At around 7.45, George Schumann was driving towards Merritt when he saw a truck and camper parked on a gravel turnout. He also saw a bicycle almost directly across the road from the camper, lying on its side. All four witnesses later underwent hypnosis to try and extract more information from their memories. On May 30, 1978, over three weeks after Monica vanished, Langley RCMP went to the home of Gary Taylor Handlin and photographed his 1972 Chevrolet Longhorn pickup truck, which had a light tan security camper fitted over the truck. Handlin was in the Merritt area around the time of Monica's disappearance, and he had a long rap sheet for sexual violence, stretching back to 1963, when he was just 16 years old. In 1969, he was convicted of assaulting a 17-year-old girl at knife point, and he received six months in prison. In 1971, he used a knife to abduct an 18-year-old, take her to a secluded area, and rape her. Though he was sentenced to five and a half years in prison for that assault, he was out only four years later when 11-year-old Catherine Mary Herbert was abducted and murdered near her Abbotsford home. Hanlon had already been interviewed by the police as a suspect in Catherine Mary's murder, which happened shortly after his release from prison. In 1975, three years before Monica Jack went missing, Hanlon, then 28, met 11-year-old Catherine Mary Herbert. Her mother, Shari, had taken a 16-year-old girl into their home after learning that she was living on the streets. When Handlin started dating that girl, Shari had no idea that he had multiple criminal convictions as a violent sexual offender. On Wednesday, September 24, 1975, Catherine Mary Herbert was visiting a friend who lived on the other side of the Abbotsford Airport from the Herbert home. She left to walk home in the early evening and met up with her friend Bradley, who was riding his bike. He gave her a ride, dropping her at the intersection of Townline and Marshall Roads near her home, just a little before 9pm. Catherine Mary never made the last 300 metres home. Witnesses told police that they'd seen a man sitting in a white older model car parked near the intersection where Catherine Mary was last seen and around the time that she disappeared, but they'd not thought to write down the licence plate. Catherine Mary liked to ride horses, she loved to sing, and she was tall for her age. Police believe she knew her abductor. Less than two months later, Members from the Masqui First Nation were searching for wood to use in a ceremonial rite for the funeral of a band member on the band's burial grounds north of Harris Road and about 12 kilometres from the Herbert home. 
Instead, they came across a decomposed body, hidden under a sheet of plywood. Catherine Mary had died from a heavy blow to the head that had fractured her skull and broke her jaw. Handlin, the convicted sex offender who had frequently visited their home, was questioned, but bizarrely, never charged. According to an excellent documentary by David Ridgen, the creator of CBC's Someone Knows Something and the Next Call podcasts, way back in 2009, and five years before Gary Handlin was arrested, there was a huge amount of circumstantial evidence that always pointed to him. Police detectives told Ridgen that the investigation into Catherine Mary's murder had been botched from the beginning. The original autopsy report was only a paragraph long. Catherine Mary's clothes were buried with her and were never tested, let alone preserved. And in the 1990s, when the Masqui Police Department was absorbed by the Abbotsford Police Department, most of Catherine Mary's murder file was lost. Also lost were a pair of mysterious letters addressed to Catherine Mary that had been sent to her home years after her murder. The documents were sent to an RCMP crime lab for handwriting analysis and apparently never seen again. In 1996, when DNA was starting to be used in police investigations, Catherine Mary's mother, Shari, managed to get the police department to exhume her daughter's body and finally test the clothes and the other material that was found in there. What's really tragic is that if police had done their jobs back in 1975, when Catherine Mary Herbert was murdered, then Monica Jack may still be alive. I'll be back after this short break from our sponsor, Arsenal Pulp Press. I wanted to tell you about a great deal from my publisher, Arsenal Pulp Press. They're offering 20% off to listeners of Cold Case Canada. This includes my new book, Cold Case BC, Cold Case Vancouver, Vancouver Exposed and Murder by Milkshake. You can also pick up any of Aaron Chapman's fabulous books, including his latest, Vancouver Vice, The Last Gang in Town and Vancouver After Dark. Just go to arsenalpulp.com and use the promo code COLDCASE at checkout. That's one word, COLDCASE, and get 20% off these books and other great titles. On June 2nd, 1995, 17 years after Monica Jack went missing, forestry workers from Merritt were doing some controlled burning in a ravine on Swacombe Mountain when they came across what looked like human remains. There was a skull and a little further down they found three bone fragments. It was RCMP forensic identification specialist Steve Gell's day off when he received the call to join other officers investigating the crime scene. He drove up Highway 5A, turned up a narrow and steep mountainous road and drove about six kilometres along a rugged trail. He walked up a hillside and through the trees until the area opened up onto a clearing. A grid system was set up where the remains were found. Earth was being excavated and then sifted through screens. Officers also used metal detectors in hopes of finding further evidence such as rings or necklaces. Nothing else was found. The bones were charred and weathered and it took another eight months to confirm through dental records and DNA testing that they were the remains of Monica Jack. 
One of the ironies of this horrific murder is that Swacker Mountain, where Monica was left, was named for her ancestors. Two days before her burial at the Shulis Reserve, more than 50 friends and relatives hiked to the spot where her remains were found. An Indigenous doctor led a ceremony to release her spirit. That night, many gathered back at Monica's mother's house. They sang Monica's favourite hymn, Amazing Grace, amid Catholic prayers and traditional drumming. At 10am on the day of her burial, there was a heavy frost covering the ground. Monica's uncle Bill John split some wood with an axe, while her father arranged the kindling on the ground. He set fire to the wood and then piled on more wood, thawing the ground for the burial of his only daughter. Monica would rest alongside her paternal grandparents, great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents. If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. Just over three months after Monica was abducted, Gary Taylor Handlin, now living in New Westminster, picked up a 21-year-old hitchhiker from Quebec near Hope, B.C. He pretended to stop for a washroom break and grabbed the victim from behind, dragged her into the woods, raped her, and tried to strangle her. She managed to escape and was picked up by a passing motorist who recorded Handlin's license plate. Handlin was sentenced to 18 years in jail. Judge Stuart McMorran told him that his record at 32 years of age was appalling. It was his fourth sexual conviction in nine years. And even though this predator was a serial sexual offender, His sentence was reduced to 12 years on appeal, and in the end, he was released after serving less than 10. Investigators had always believed that Hanlon was capable of and likely responsible for murdering Monica Jack and Catherine Mary Herbert, but he refused to answer questions or take a polygraph lie detector test. The evidence was all circumstantial and the Crown, for whatever reason, felt there was not enough of it to lay charges. In 2014, 36 years after Monica's murder, the RCMP launched an undercover operation targeting Handlin. At that time, he was running a small renovation business and living with a woman in the central Ontario town of Midden. It was a Mr Big operation, a controversial procedure that the RCMP have used since the early 1990s to either charge or clear suspects in major cold cases. In a Mr Big operation, an undercover police officer acts as a crime boss. He has an underling recruit the suspect to perform a series of what he thinks are illegal activities that lead to multiple perks. Along the way, he or she is made to believe that they are becoming an increasingly important part of a well-connected criminal organisation. Handlin, then 67, jumped at the opportunity. He bragged to his recruiter that he was a former member of the British Army's SAS and had parachuted behind enemy lines. He had a daughter, he said, who was a doctor, and he had made a great deal of money in the oil sands in Alberta, working as a supervisor. He also said that he owned a successful restaurant on Vancouver Island. None of this was true. 
The undercover operation ran over 10 months and involved 82 staged scenarios. Handlin was put up in hotels, taken out for meals, and paid nearly $12,000 for jobs such as loan sharking, repossessing vehicles, smuggling cigarettes, and selling counterfeit goods. He was eventually introduced to the crime boss, who told him that police were investigating Handlin for the murder of Monica Jack. Mr Big said the police had DNA evidence and witnesses that linked him to the murder and the case would be going to court. They're coming for you, Mr Big told him in November 2014, about nine months into the sting. Hanlon's confession to the RCMP officer he thought was a crime boss is chilling. It takes place in a hotel room and you can see Hanlon sitting on the couch. The police officer's voice and face have been intentionally distorted, so he can't be recognised, but it's difficult to make out his words. Hanlon's responses are quite clear, though. When the undercover officer tells Hanlon that police have DNA evidence that links him to Monica Jack's murder, Hanlon responds that he's fucked. But the officer tells him that the man in the criminal enterprise, who hasn't got long to live, will make a deathbed confession in exchange for money for his family. He tells Handlin that he has the power to make it all go away if Handlin just gives him the details of the crime. Here's a clip from the tape. If you had trouble making out Hanlon's responses, at one point he tells the officer, all the years where nothing has happened, nothing, it's behind me, has been for years. That's the way it goes, says the officer. Hanlon says he's not exactly sure what happened, that he was in a drunken stupor. He remembers picking up a broad one time, having sex with her, and then just lost it for some reason. I think I strangled her, he says. I'm not sure. He knew that Monica was native, he said, and said that she could have been 11 or 12 years old. He said he met her at the turn-off on the side of the road along the side of the hill. Three undercover officers posing as members of the crime organisation travelled with Handlin to Merritt so that he could show them the pull-out where he had abducted Monica. Over the course of the next two days, he gave more details of her kidnapping and murder. Handlin was arrested and charged with the murders of Monica Jack and Catherine Mary Herbert on November 28, 2014. He was kept in custody until the trial was underway four years later. Handlin pled not guilty 
and his lawyer put up a spirited defence that he was a liar and had falsely confessed to Mr Big to keep the perks coming. The BC Supreme Court jury wasn't having it. Handler knew about the holdback evidence and even though the jury did not know about his long criminal record of sexual assault or that he had been charged with the murder of Catherine Mary Herbert, they found him guilty of first-degree murder. Handlin stood quietly in a grey-plaid shirt and glasses while the guilty verdict was read and spectators cheered. He received life in prison with no eligibility for parole for 25 years. During the Mr Big Sting, Handlin had also confessed to murdering 11-year-old Catherine Mary Herbert. He said that he had picked her up in his car, had sex with her, and then strangled her before dumping her body in an Indigenous cemetery. Even though he showed the investigators where he had picked her up and disposed of her body, his confession was ruled inadmissible because it was argued that he could have got the information from the media. As unlikely as this was, prosecutors decided not to pursue a murder conviction for Catherine Mary Herbert. While Catherine Mary's mother had the satisfaction of seeing Hanlon charged in her daughter's murder in 2014, Shari died two years later. I'm glad that she didn't know that Hanlon would never be convicted for her own daughter's murder. Madeline says that little was done when Monica first went missing, and it wasn't until 2007 when a partner was formed that officers asked her permission to add Monica's name to the list of unsolved murders and missing women and girls that they were investigating. Madeline jumped at the chance to have Monica's case more fully investigated. Project Ipana was formed initially to investigate a handful of cases of murdered and missing women along Highway 16, known around the world as the Highway of Tears. Police were looking for a serial killer. As time went on, more cases were added until Ipana consisted of 18 cases and included both Indigenous and non-Indigenous women aged between 12 and 33. At this time, aside from Monica's case, only one other has been officially solved. In 2012, DNA found at the crime scene of 16-year-old Colleen Miller was linked to Bobby Jack Fowler, who had died in an American prison in 2006. Madeline says that when Handlin was arrested in Vancouver, She was with her family and three investigators. She was told when he was handcuffed, read his rights and taken to jail. After he was convicted of Monica's murder, the family were able to give their victim impact statements. This is from a news clip from CTV in 2019. She's my baby doctor. I love her, yes, I do. A song for a little girl lost to her family when she was just 12. Monica Jack disappeared while riding her bike near Merritt in 1978. Now the man convicted of her murder has been given a life sentence. I was always hoping that that we would make it to court and he would be locked up for the rest of his life. My sister Monica was beautiful, sweet, kind and good at everything I ever saw her do. Jack's family made emotional statements at the sentencing of the now 71-year-old Gary Taylor Handlin. I promised her at her graveside I would never give up. For Jack's family, that day has now come. 
but that doesn't mean their pain has ended. It's something that you can't get over. And it's going to always be there in our hearts forever as long as we live. Each one of us. Maria Weisgarber, CTV News, Vancouver. Handlin further traumatised the Jack family by launching an appeal. He argued that the Mr Big confession should not have been admitted into evidence and that the four witness statements should not have been allowed. His appeal was finally squashed on September 23, 2022. Now let's hope this time Mr Handlin goes away for life. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like more information on this or other cases, please go to my website, evelazarus.com, or join us on the Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada. Now it's my pleasure to bring you a trailer from Cambo at the True Crime Island podcast. Do you get mad when listening to true crime? Well, so do I. If you want a weekly true crime podcast that says what you're thinking, then grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is Cambo from True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, and maintain the rage with me. Visit truecrimeisland.com where you can download or stream each episode, plus there's links to iTunes and social media. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. This is True Crime Island.